Hello and welcome to Nerd Roamer. This is your host, The Cross. Here at Nerd Roamer, we seek to weave together different historical, scientific, and natural topics that you can tie to different places around the North American continent. We view ourselves as being kind of an audio guidebook to the world around you. We want every single trip you take outside your door to feel like a field trip. Whether you're going down to get the mail, go pick up groceries, or you're driving across the country, we've got deep dives for you. We want everyone out there to roam wisely. And we also want to give a special thanks to Johnny Hogg for that lovely theme song we've got, Places I've Been. There's nothing quite like going to a good fair. Growing up, I remember being jostled by the crowds, gawking at the strange sights, and who could forget that delicious fried fair food? One of the main things I remember was being able to awkwardly relive the day you'd had by examining the stains on your shirt, mapping them out like some sort of archaeologist. In between snacks, one could try to win prizes at the carnival, step in any number of different varieties of manure, or even take a two-mile, one-hour detour on foot just to see how fat a particular pig had gotten that year. Some of my favorite memories from going to the fairs are getting to see my uncle's wood carving work get featured in one of the art exhibits. He was from a small town in rural Minnesota, and it always made us all so proud to get to see people from all over the state come and examine his handiwork. You see, fairs are about the best in us. And also a little bit the worst of us. And also a little bit celebrating the worst of us. But more than anything else, they're about bringing us together. That's why, for example, the Minnesota State Fair's motto is the Great Minnesota Get-Together. And if you haven't guessed it yet, today we're going to be talking about the history of fairs. Particularly, I'm going to have a little bit of a focus on what I consider to be the greatest fair of them all, the Minnesota State Fair. But, oh, citizen of Iowa, Wisconsin, Texas, or California, don't you worry. Don't swipe left on this podcast just because you think you're going to be forgotten. Much of what I say is going to be applicable to fairs in general, and I'm also going to try to single out some fun facts about some of America's other popular fairs. I think the American humorist Garrison Keillor summed it up best when he said, Some state fairs are roomier, some are gaudier, but there's a great sameness to them, just as there is a similarity among Catholic churches. I will enumerate some of the fascinating, unique cultural and historical aspects of the Minnesota State Fair, to be sure, but know deep in your heart that parallels can be drawn to whatever fair you know and love. So let's just play the Uno Reverso card right now and back, back, back it up, and let's talk about the early origins of where the whole idea of these fairs come from. You can trace the idea of special occasion human gatherings back even to the Old Testament, the ancient Greeks and Romans. In many early cases, fairs at this time were more of an opportunity for merchants to meet and exchange wares, when travel between towns and over long distances would be limited and more infrequent. In ancient Rome in particular, some fairs took on religious significance as well. For example, there were many Latin festivals, one of which, the Ferii Latini, was a religious festival that was held each April on Monte Cavo outside Rome that included feasting, animal sacrifice, and swinging from trees, which honestly sounds like a super rad time. But there are many other Latin festivals. I'm singling that one out in particular because the word ferii seems to be the genesis of our current word fair in the English lexicon, at least in the context of its use as a noun describing some sort of festival or gathering. Throughout the ensuing centuries, the Christian church in Europe would put their own spin on fairs, tying feast days related to different saints to different marketplaces where merchants could barter and sell their wares, along with holding different feasts, 
music performances, and the like. These festivals were oftentimes quite lucrative for the churches, but again the focus was more commercial and religious and not necessarily as agricultural as our current fairs are today. The idea of festival gatherings was not unique to Europe, and pre-Columbian America had its share of festivals and fairs as well. While the cultures and the histories of the ancient people of the Western Hemisphere are much too complex to paint with a broad brush, there are a couple of nice specific examples. For one, the Mayan people in Mesoamerica held regular festivals, which were oftentimes very religious in nature. And these included the famous Mesoamerican ball game, so this inclusion of a sporting event with the gathering, in addition to dancers in elaborate wardrobes, sometimes sacrifices that could be either animal or human. And these were events where thousands of people would be in attendance. There were quite large gatherings. If you lived in a smaller city, it was possible that pretty much the entire city would be there. And you could see gatherings of thousands upon thousands of people if you're talking about a festival in a larger Mayan city. Farther north, powwows are a part of the tradition of native peoples across the Great Plains and into the northeast of America. Farther north, powwows are a part of the tradition of native peoples across the Great Plains and into the northeast. The word itself derives from the language of Narragansett, a first nation of Rhode Island. In Narragansett, the word powwow first recorded by the Europeans meeting with a spiritual leader, was first noted in 1675. If this year rings a bell, it's because this was the year during which the Europeans got into it with the Wampanoag, who you might remember as those who showed sympathy for the Mayflower Pilgrims. Ultimately, the conflict between the Europeans and the Wampanoag resulted in King Philip's War, so named because of the colonial alias the leader of the Wampanoag assumed at times. The powwow coincided with a meeting between the Europeans and the Narragansett to talk about conspiring against the Wampanoag, but the Narragansett had played this game before during the Pequot War several decades earlier, and had been left with a really bad taste in their mouths and a negative feeling towards the way that the Europeans fought, so they refused. Ultimately, they paid the price for this, and they would be attacked by the colonizers, and three years of King Philip's War would see some of the bloodiest battles in all of colonial history. As recorded by the Europeans, these powwows, like the one in 1675, were portrayed as being more administrative or political, but I will point out that the word powwow can describe gatherings of many different types, and throughout history and to this day, powwows can mean many different things in different places at different times to different people. For example, some of the rendezvous held by fur trappers and native peoples in the early 19th century were described by one mixed ethnicity trader as consisting of mirth, songs, dancing, shouting, trading, running, jumping, singing, racing, target shooting, yarns, frolic, with all sorts of extravagances that either white men or Indians could invent. These rendezvous gatherings were often held in the early summer as a way to sell and exchange goods and to celebrate surviving the hard winters of the northern Rockies and Great Plains. Later in the 19th century, Powwows took on a new meaning for First Nations as Native peoples got pushed onto increasingly small reservations, oftentimes mixing completely different cultures. Powwows rich in traditional song and dance became a way of preserving identity, and shared circumstances led to intertribal gatherings and mixtures of performance styles. With all these different influences, ancient, European, and First Nation influences, the first recorded fair by Europeans in North America was held in Windsor, Nova Scotia in 1765. This, known as the Hans County Exhibition, is the oldest continually running agricultural fair in North America at 255 years, 
And in case you were worried about this being violated during the year of the pandemic 2020, I want you to know that they are keeping the streak alive with a virtual fair this year, according to their website. So do not weep for the Hans County exhibition because it will carry on. I had to give a shout out to this fair in Nova Scotia out of respect to the excellent history podcast that you can find on your podcast listening service of choice, Canadian History X. I highly recommend checking it out. They put out a ton of content. So if you go crazy waiting for your bi-monthly editions of Nerd Roamer to come out, check out Canadian History X. I'm sure they'll have some sort of content that's going to scratch your itch. They've got some great episodes out there. So bringing this back south of the border, back to the United States of America, and really to the United States of America, because we're coming at you now after 1776, the county fair as we know it, as you would picture if you've been to a county fair or a state fair nowadays, the county fair as we know it is mainly the byproduct of the efforts of a 19th century New Englander named Elkanah Watson. So this cat in 1811 debuted a fair organized by the Berkshires Agricultural Society. So you're going to see this as a theme as we go through these different fairs, is that generally these fairs after 1811 in America are oftentimes thrown by these different agricultural societies. Most of us, if we were to go back and look at this first fair thrown by Mr. Watson, would recognize this as being very similar to a county or a state fair that we would know and love today. He added a key element that came to be one of the defining features of fairs to come, and that is livestock and crop competitions. So he added like the livestock show. That was one of the big things that supercharged the popularity of these events. It was an incredibly popular event that he threw. Other counties around New England wanted to copy it. After the success of the Berkshire Agricultural Society's initial fair, they invited Elkanah Watson to travel to these different New England counties to help other districts organize their own fairs. And by the end of the decade, so by about 1820 or so, the county fair had truly taken root and almost every county in New England was starting to throw some sort of county fair. So now we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to move on to our case study. So the Minnesota State Fair is going to be what ties us to a specific geographical location because I like to do that for Nerd Roamer. I like to give you content where, say, if you're visiting Minnesota and you're interested in learning more about something, you know, it ties this information to a specific place. And I also think it just helps to pick a single case study so you can just kind of see how these fairs develop over the years. And then ultimately, what we're left with today. What is a fair, county fair, state fair like today? So for the Minnesota State Fair, you have to remember that Minnesota first became a state in May of 1858. Minnesota had been carved out of the Minnesota Territory, which itself had been created from a mishmash of the Wisconsin Territory and Iowa Territory, roughly a decade previously. There were actually fairs in Minnesota that predated its statehood, but these were not obviously state fairs because it wasn't a state yet. The early state fairs and even the territorial fairs were designed with one thing in mind. They wanted to excite and entice people to move to Minnesota. The idea was that an increase in the population would line the pockets of the landowners and businessmen and would increase the chances of national recognition, statehood, and growing cities to have amenities comparable to larger quote-unquote real cities further east. They used the fairs to showcase how robust the crops could grow, so they'd have these big showcases of huge bushels of wheat and big ears of corn and that kind of thing. And they would also show off some of the fine farm machinery that was available and how happy the cows were in Minnesota. Sorry, California. After statehood was granted, 
the Minnesota State Agricultural Society took over administering the fair. And you will see as you look at the county state fairs around the country, as we talked about before, most of them have more of an agricultural focus and many of them are run by agricultural societies. For decades, the fair was held in different locations around the state of Minnesota. So it didn't have one particular home. You'll oftentimes see if you're driving around the country, you'll see places where it says, this is the county fairgrounds, this is the state fairgrounds. And in the early years of this fair, that was not the case. They had it all over the place. They had it in Minneapolis, they'd have it in St. Paul, even in cities like Rochester where the Mayo Clinic is, Red Wing in the Mississippi River Bottoms, Winona in the Mississippi River Bottoms, uh, Owatonna out on the plains. Over the years, people began arguing that they needed to find a more permanent place to settle down, with even President Rutherford B. Hayes weighing in at one point, recommending a particular spot. Eventually, in 1885, Ramsey County which is the county that St. Paul is located in. So it's to the east of Hennepin County, which is the county that Minneapolis is located in. In 1885, Ramsey County donated the site of the county poor farm in Hamlin, which is now part of the town of Falcon Heights, to the Agricultural Society. And the state fair had finally found its permanent home, smack dab in between Minneapolis and St. Paul. And if you're not familiar at all with the Twin Cities or Minneapolis and St. Paul, you'll know that there has always been a pretty fierce rivalry between the two towns, and it would have been kind of a big thing politically to pick one city over the other. And so the fact that they chose this place in Hamlin or Falcon Heights really showed that they were trying to make this be a statewide fair, make it be neutral, try to bring everybody together. Now there's something that I said that you may have noticed that I kind of glanced over. So you might be saying, whoa, 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 hold the horses here. You're asking, what in the heck is a poor farm? So this is my podcast. I can go on tangents when I want to. So we're going to go on a little tangent here before we get back to talking about state fairs. Because when I heard this, I was like, I don't know whether to be happy or not about them choosing the side of the poor farm. Like, should I feel bad for the people that were living on the poor farm? What is a poor farm exactly? It sounds like maybe not a very pleasant place to be. So let's get into that a little bit. So most of the sources I found on state fair history also kind of glossed over this. But I was able to uncover some material with some digging. So Dating back to its time as a territory, Minnesota had handled the care of its poor and disabled people in a way that was very much in line with the way that the Wisconsin Territory had. Under this model, the state or the territory at the time actually made counties responsible for the care of their poor people. So initially when populations and thus costs were pretty low, they did this by providing what they called outside relief. So outside relief essentially meant that they would directly compensate people out in the community to take care of the indigent. So if you knew someone in your community who was disabled or maybe impoverished, the county would reimburse either the impoverished person directly or maybe a caretaker to take care of them. It wasn't very much, and they did it kind of begrudgingly, but that was their system. As the populations grew larger, this kind of became unwieldy. It was difficult to keep track of, and it was expensive for the counties. And so the counties were looking for a cheaper way to kind of house and feed people who were down on their luck. Um, and so they turned to inside relief, is what they called it. In Oliver Twist or something like that, you might think of this as being kind of like an almshouse or a poorhouse. And in Minnesota, the way that this took shape was oftentimes as a poor farm. So you can basically think of a poor farm as being like an almshouse or a poorhouse. 
but like in farm form. One aspect of this strategy that was different from the prior strategy was that oftentimes obtaining assistance was contingent upon moving to the poor farm and working. In theory, this sounds like a win for everyone, but in practice it was a complete mess and was not at all ideal. Because the poor farms weren't just for people who had a bad stretch of luck and needed some work. If that was the case, maybe getting them some experience on a farm and a warm bed and a check in their pocket would be great. But the poor farms kind of became catch-alls for people with all kinds of different problems, unfortunately. It was also people who had physical disabilities, it was people who had substance use issues. It was people who had mental health problems. Poor farms just kind of became a catch-all for people with all kinds of different maladies. And not even just adults, 15% of those residing on poor farms in 1884 were less than 14 years old. So you've got children, you've got people with health problems, you've got people with mental health problems, alcohol problems, and then a few people who just needed work all living in the same place and obviously they weren't all capable of doing the same kind of work and it wasn't ideal for all of them to have optimal function to be kind of jammed into this one place and like removed from their typical home or community so it was really it sounded maybe like a good idea on paper but then it wound up not being a good idea really at all by 1885 the state of minnesota was realizing that this was not going to work and it was not a very good idea so they appointed a commission to examine how the state was caring for its poor. A lot of the counties at this time, maybe with some degree of relief, started downsizing their unwieldy poor farms that weren't functioning super well. Ramsey County is a perfect example of this. So at the time that they gave their poor farm site over to the State Fair of Minnesota, they subsequently moved that poor farm to a new site in the township of New Canada. And then over the years, that site morphed from being a poor farm, like we had been talking about, to being a site that actually just functioned more as like a nursing care facility for the elderly. And it's actually still functioning to this day in that capacity. All right, so we're going to jump back to state fairs now. As noted before, the fair was really an opportunity for the state to show off. It was showing off its agricultural might and its industrial bounties. The northern section of the fair, as laid out on this new site in Falcon Heights, dubbed Machinery Hill, became a showcase for farm technology. At its peak, this covered over 80 acres and was the single largest collection of farm machinery for display in the entire world. And this gave farmers a chance to gather. They could look at all the newest technology, even place orders for things so that they could improve their yields the next year and be up on the latest technology. In addition to showing off the farm equipment, the exhibits showing off agricultural bounty were quite numerous. These included exhibits showing off wheat, butter, livestock, giant vegetables. You'll see even to this day at the Minnesota State Fair exhibits where they display giant vegetables. Trying to find the state's biggest pumpkin or zucchini is a very popular exhibit. Craft work like the sculpting we had mentioned before, as well as needlework, handicrafts, and cooking. Things like baking bread or baking pies, making jam, that kind of thing. This proved to be incredibly popular over the years. And by the 1970s, attendance over the period of the fair had grown to 1.5 million people yearly as it expanded to its current duration of 12 days in length at the end of August and beginning of September. In recent years, this has risen to 2 million per state fair, tying the State Fair of Texas for the highest attended State Fair, albeit in about half as many days as the State Fair of Texas, giving the Minnesota State Fair 
the highest average daily attendance at 175,000 people per day with a single-day record of 270,000 people packed into the fair's 322 acres on a Saturday in 2018. So you will find no other fair in North America that consistently draws people on a daily basis the way the Minnesota State Fair does. And that's one of the reasons why I think if you're from a state that doesn't really have a big state fair and you want to check one out, it just doesn't get much more festive than the Minnesota State Fair. The fair has evolved over the years as well. While there's still plenty of the agricultural immersion to be had, there are some other experiences that have been introduced to make the fair more modern and to really showcase the full gamut of what Minnesota or the state has to offer. So this includes some exhibits on that machinery hill that we were talking about, maybe showcasing new cars, new heating and cooling solutions, things like that instead of not as many tractors maybe in addition to some technology and ecology exhibits, as well as food, music, and dance performances from some of Minnesota's different cultural groups. Fairs to this day remain an opportunity for us to show off the best that we have to offer, even if this is in some domains that may not have existed traditionally. All right, so now that we brought ourselves up to the present day, let's just touch on some of the really unique kind of wacky things that you might see at the Minnesota State Fair. So number one that will pop up on most people's list is the Butter Queen. So when I talk about the Butter Queen, I am talking about this kind of unique Minnesota competition, this Minnesota phenomenon of Princess K of the Milky Way. This title is awarded to the winner of the Minnesota Dairy Princess Program competition. What in the heck is a dairy princess? Well, let me tell you. This is someone selected as part of this process to serve as a goodwill ambassador for the dairy industry in the state of Minnesota. The competition has been held annually since 1954 and receives over 10,000 entries a year. Out of these 10,000 entries or so a year, 12 finalists are selected, and out of these 12 finalists, Princess K is selected. So what are the requirements for becoming Princess K, if you were wondering? So first of all, you have to be a U.S. citizen whose parent or sibling must be actively involved in the production of dairy products. So you can't just be some city slicker who doesn't have anything to do with the dairy industry. You or your family has to be directly involved in the production of dairy products. You have to be a woman and you have to be between the ages of 18 and 24 with a high school diploma. Those are the requirements. So if you can somehow get yourself to meet those requirements, you can apply to be Princess K of the Milky Way. You too can become a dairy princess. But what am I going to be judged upon, you'll ask me? Is this a beauty pageant? To which I would answer, while there are some aspects of this that might seem similar to a beauty pageant, in that it seems to be for unmarried women under the age of 24, it's a scholarship program, there's a big public relations component. There is no beauty aspect to the judging and the selection process. Candidates are judged simply on their communication skills, their knowledge of the dairy industry, so they're actually like quizzed on their knowledge of the dairy industry, as well as like products and like ongoing issues in the dairy industry, and their commitment to the dairy industry and promotion of the dairy industry. So there's no swimsuit competition, there's no formal wear, you have to twirl a baton or anything like that. It really does seem to be very objective and based on these professional skills. So I think that that's great. That's wonderful. But what does it get me to be selected as Princess K of the Milky Way? I could hear you asking. 
The best part of being selected as a finalist is that you get to undergo this very unique process at the Minnesota State Fair, and you get to have your sculpture carved from a piece of butter. And so I know you're maybe picturing like a little stick of butter, this little maybe like Barbie doll they're carving out of the stick of butter. No, no, no. Since about the 1960s or so, sculptures of the finalists and the winner, Princess K, are carved out of a 90-pound block of butter. These are life-size sculptures of a bust of the Butter Queen. So it's like basically from the shoulders up or from the chest up. So you get this huge kind of life-size sculpture of yourself in this huge block of butter. And it's done in real time at the fair. So you come in on the day that you're going to have your sculpture done. You sit down in this rotating glass refrigerated booth with a sculptor. The one who's been doing it for the longest at the State Fair is a lady named Linda Christensen. And for six to eight hours, you wear a big puffy jacket and gloves and a smile on your face. And you sit there and you have your sculpture done. And by the end of the day, there is a bust of you at the fair that gets put on that rotating pedestal. And people get to see your sculpture as it comes around and around and around. And then at the end of the fair, you get to take your big chunk your 90-pound head of Minnesota butter home with you to keep. And then you spend the rest of your year working for the Dairy Association, promoting the dairy industry in Minnesota. So it's, I think, a very unique cultural phenomenon. Thousands of people come by to see this sculpting done. It happens every day of the fair. And you have got to check it out. If you're going to this state fair and it's your first time there, you've got to see it. Another thing that sets the State Fair of Minnesota apart is just the sheer variety of food that you can find there. So there are over 300 food concessionaires offering over 500 different types of things to eat. Some of the most popular include Sweet Martha's Cookie Jar, which produces over 3 million cookies a day while they're at the State Fair. That's how popular they are. There are also both Pronto Pups and Corn Dogs, and if you're wondering what the difference between the two is, know that Pronto Pups hail to us from Oregon and are hot dogs dipped in a pancake batter rather than a corn-based batter. So that's the main difference between a Corn Dog and a Pronto Pup. There are other traditional fair foods like mini donuts, hot dogs, bloomin' onions, funnel cakes, and the like. There's an all-you-can-drink milk booth where you can literally sidle up to the side of the booth and drink as much milk as you can possibly stomach. According to the State Fair, they serve about 26,000 gallons of milk each year at the booth. And if you were to have one cow spend its entire life trying to make the milk necessary for that booth, it would take it eight to nine years to do so. There's a gigantic corn roast booth that serves 25,000 ears of roast corn to fairgoers every day. And just in case you are worried that only foods native to Minnesota were available, directly next door to it is a booth that serves deep-fried alligator. The State Fair is also known for its plethora of foods offered on a stick. In addition to corn dogs and pronto pups like we discussed before, you can find deep-fried candy bars on a stick, deep-fried s'mores, the alligator that we just mentioned, as well as deep-fried hot dish on a stick. To others, this might be known as casserole deep-fried olives, deep-fried pickles, and of course you can't forget the beer on a stick. Finally, I would like to point out that currently we are within the confines of the 12 days that would have normally marked the Minnesota State Fair. And if you've noticed from watching the news, we are firmly embroiled in election season already. This is par for the course for the State Fair. Politics and the State Fair go hand in hand. It oftentimes gives Minnesotans a chance to get out to the booths for their various candidates at the State Fair to quiz them on their positions on different issues in order to figure out who they're going to cast their vote for. 
It's not unusual historically for U.S. presidents to have graced the State Fair. Presidents to have visited the State Fair include Calvin Coolidge, Warren G. Harding, William Howard Taft, Dwight Eisenhower, and Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's visit in particular is quite memorable. He visited the Minnesota State Fair on September 2nd, 1901. At the time, he was vice president, and he gave a speech with a never-before-heard catchphrase that barely registered in the morning newspapers but came to define him later on in his career. Speak softly and carry a big stick was first uttered on the stage at the grandstand. Little did he know at the time, but within the next two weeks, William McKinley would be assassinated and he would become President Roosevelt. If you remember hearing John F. Kennedy during our intro, know that he visited the state fairgrounds just after the state fair in 1962 to attend a bean supper, which I think is still very much in the spirit of the Minnesota State Fair. During the 2004 presidential election, John Kerry, John McCain, and Dick Cheney all also visited the state fair as part of their campaign tours. As we mentioned before, the lights are off at the State Fair this year. They did manage to stage a drive through edition of the State Fair where people could pick up their favorite foods and gawk at a few huge vegetables, but by and large, the fair was shut down. This isn't the first time that's happened, though. There have been five previous occasions on which the State Fair couldn't be held. In 1861 and 1862, the state simply had better things to do. They were fighting in the Civil War and were also embroiled in a conflict with Native Americans more locally that diverted the attention of those organizing the fair to other pressing manners. In 1893, the World Columbian Exposition, World's Fair going on in Chicago, upstaged the Minnesota State Fair with its 600-acre white city. The State Fair just didn't want to compete with this big spectacle. They wanted to encourage Minnesota citizens to go down and check out the World's Fair in order to further glorify America with great attendance there. And so no State Fair was held during 1893 during the World's Fair. Finally, in 1945, due to fuel shortages during World War II, they simply were not able to draw enough power to get all the lights turned on and get people turning out for the State Fair. And also at that time, they had converted some of the buildings at the State Fair into factories to make devices for the war, such as propellers for aircraft. The final year that the fair was closed until the year 2020 was also secondary to an epidemic. The fair remained closed in 1946 because of a polio outbreak, making holding the State Fair too dangerous in the eyes of those organizing it that year. 1947 at the fair was a hugely popular year where many classic Foods on a Stick debuted, and I think that we can all only hope that the year 2021 brings a similarly large turnout, lots of enthusiasm, and some great new developments. Now, just because I didn't want people from other states to feel left out, I'm going to drop just a few random facts about some other state fairs, just to make sure that everyone feels included, because that's what state fairs are all about. The Minnesota State Fair can't lay claim to the only butter sculptures. In fact, Illinois and Iowa both carve five to six hundred pound cows out of butter at their state fairs, which is five to six times the size of the 90 pound block used to carve the butter queen's head in Minnesota. Number two of five. While we may have talked about plants like corn or livestock like cows as being judged as agricultural products during fairs, several fairs are starting to modernize their competitions by including a new crop sweeping America, marijuana. The State Fair of Oregon in particular has a marijuana competition where plants are judged in the same way that other plants like zucchini, pumpkin, and corn are. Number three. While we mentioned the wonderful largest pumpkin contest that the state of Minnesota holds at each state fair, the Alaska State Fair harnesses their 24 hours of continuous sunlight each summer to grow some of the largest vegetables in the world. 
In particular, their giant cabbage contest is the star of the show, with a way off declaring the winner. The winning cabbages are oftentimes in excess of 100 pounds, which is giving me stomach cramps just thinking about it. Who am I kidding? Most of the things we've been talking about today are giving me a stomach ache. Number four, not everyone is capable of raising livestock from a tiny calf or piglet into a large show animal. And Colorado has become sensitive to this by offering an additional category where people can submit the objects that they care for to be judged. And that's the Colorado State Fair Pet Rock Contest. So feel free to find a rock, dress it up nicely, and enter it to see what you can accomplish. And finally, number five, you might be wondering to yourself, of the state fairs that are out there, you know, we talked about the first fair in 1811 that was kind of more of a, a regional or county fair. What's the oldest state fair in the United States? And the answer to that would be the New York State Fair that's held each year in Syracuse. It's been going on since the 1840s, and you can and should still check it out today. And by today, I mean August 20th, 2021, because it's canceled this year. But they'll see you next year. And speaking of seeing people next time, I want to thank you all for listening to this episode of Nerd Roamer. If you're wondering to yourself, hey, where's my knowledge nugget with this episode? I'll let you know that that'll be coming out as a separate, shorter episode in between our longer episodes from now on. So follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice so you don't miss out. Go back and look through our old episodes, see if there's any other great Nerd Roamer content that you're missing out on that you want to listen to. And if you want to stay up to date on all the latest Nerd Roamer news, gossip, fresh episodes, quizzes, giveaways, that kind of thing, Make sure you follow us on Instagram or Twitter at NerdRomer, or check out our website at NerdRomer.com. NerdRomer.com, we're also going to have links to some of the materials referenced in the show, in addition to extra pictures, links, etc., etc., etc. However, just because we don't have a knowledge nugget this time, doesn't mean I don't have one last little thing that I'm going to leave for you. Now, I realize this main episode may have been a little fluffy, might have been a little bit of a puff piece compared to some of our other material. But I think feeling nostalgic about togetherness and waxing poetic about our silly little gatherings just fine right now. In the spirit of this, I'm going to share an excerpt from one of my favorite essays on state fairs. This essay from Harper's Weekly, published in 1993 by David Foster Wallace, is part of his reflections on visiting the Illinois State Fair after having moved away from the Midwest for many years. And I quote the great late David Foster Wallace. Seas of fair-going flesh, plodding, elbowing, looking, still eating. They stand placidly in long lines. No East Coast games have beat the crowd. Midwesterners lack a certain public cutting. No one gets impatient. Don't the fairgoers mind the crowds, the lines, noise? But the state fair is deliberately about the crowds and the jostle, the noise and the overload of sight and event. East Coasters see more than enough stimulating people and sights Monday through Friday, thank you, stand enough lines, elbow enough crowds, neon skylines, grotesques on public transport, spectacles at every urban corner practically grab you by the lapels, commanding attention. The East Coast existential treat is escape from confines and stimuli. Not so in the rural Midwest. Here, you're pretty much away all the time. The land is big, board game flat, horizons in every direction. Thus, the urge to physically commune, melt, become part of the crowd. 
to see something besides land and grass and corn and cable TV in your wife's face. Hence, the sacredness out here of spectacle, public event, high school football, little league, parades, bingo, market day, fair, all very big deals, very deep down. Something in a Midwesterner sort of actuates deep down at a public event. The faces, in the sea of faces, are like the faces of children released from their rooms. The governor's state spirit rhetoric at the ribbon cutting rings true. The real spectacle that draws us here is us.